When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to episode number 35 of The Music Plays the Band on the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rob Kors of the Dark Star Orchestra. I hope you're all safe and well. Well, I'm back out here on the road, coming to you today from a hotel room in Charlottesville, Virginia. We've had a couple days off here after a great start to tour, a show in Pennsylvania, and then a fun sold-out two-night run at the Capitol Theater in New York. So much history in that room, and it's become one of our favorites to play for sure. And on Friday night, we played a Europe 72 show 50 years later from the date. Uh, That would be May 11th, 1972 from Lille, France. And it's been a lot of fun playing some of these Europe shows. And it is definitely getting us excited to go across the pond in September when we're going to head over to Europe and recreate a bunch of these shows. Some of them actually in the very rooms they were played in. It was also special thanks to our friend Andy Logan and Grateful Guitars. He came in from California with Jerry's Alligator Strap that he played on that Europe tour, so Jeff could uh, have that in his hands, and and I can tell you that every time he gets his hands on it, he is inspired. There is uh, some serious mojo in that axe. So like I said, we are back out on the road and making our way up to our annual Dark Star Jubilee over Memorial Day weekend in Ohio. I'm really excited for this year. Uh, First, because it's great to be back after a two-year COVID pause. We haven't really had one. We did a little mini version last year and nothing in 2020. And I'm super jazzed about the lineup we have. Of course, you have three nights of DSO, but this year we have uh, Railroad Earth with Peter Rowan, and they're performing Old and in the Way in its entirety. We have Yonder Mountain String Band, Melvin Seals and JGB, Galactic, Keller Williams' Grateful Grass, and a whole bunch more. So, if you need something to do over Memorial Day weekend, head on out to the old Buckeye Lake. It's now called Legend Valley, outside of Columbus, Ohio. We would love to see you there. With everybody, including myself, back out there working, I'm finding that the podcast is going through a bit of an evolution right now. Now, while the main focus is still musicians who love the dead, talking about the dead, I've started to spread out from the stage and hit other aspects of the dead world. A while back, we spoke with publicist Dennis McNally, And last week was my retrospective honoring Rick Turner. Well, this week is, in my guest's own words, the best episode you've ever had. And I'm happy to bring you a conversation with the one and only Steve Parrish. I'm sure most of you are familiar with Steve. Long-time Grateful Dead crew member. Host of the Big Steve Hour on Sirius XM Radio. One of Jerry Garcia's closest friends. And definitely one of the biggest personalities on the scene. And he's got a ton going on these days he's going to tell you about. 
but I was lucky enough to get some time for a conversation with him. And uh, of course, there was so much I wanted to ask that we didn't get to, so just consider this part one. And when you're done listening, you're going to want more, and we are already trying to find a time to do part two. So before we get started, I humbly ask you to support the podcast any way you can. There is the monthly Patreon subscription with giving levels starting as low as $5 a month, which gives you exclusive bonus content, including outtakes, expanded interviews and segments, videos and stories from the road, and this time around that should include uh, some behind-the-scenes footage from the Jubilee, and much, much more. You can also make a one-time contribution via PayPal, and a portion of all the proceeds goes to the Rex Foundation, the charity started by the Grateful Dead. You can find out all about this and more at our website, www.themusicplaystheband.net. And wherever you are listening to the podcast, please take the time to rate, like, and review. All right, prepare to be entertained. Here is my conversation with Steve Parrish. Okay, good morning to you all. How's everybody doing today? I am fortunate enough to have as my guest, Big Steve Parrish today. How are you, my friend? Hey, Rob, good to be with you, and thank you for the invitation. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, it should be a lot of fun. I know I know you are super, super busy, and I appreciate you taking the time today. Can, can you tell us a little bit about what do you have going on these days? I know there's a lot. There is a lot on, on my plate, but I like it like that. You know, I always had that. It was something that, lucky enough to have the Garcia Band and the Grateful Dead. I always felt that was two full feasts right there pushed together, you know. And so my life, I like staying busy, and uh, it's part of vibrancy of life for me. Uh, right now, of course, my I have a radio show on Sirius on the Dead Channel, and that's doing really good. We're into our deep into our fifth year already, which is amazing to me. And uh, there's a couple of other projects that I'm working on. One of them just started up at Skull and Roses with uh, the revival of the Aspites band. Forty five years later, is an overnight hit. Forty five years. Later. <laughs> I watched and, the video. Uh, it was great, man. Oh, thank you so much. You know, but we only had one rehearsal, Rob, and uh, everybody came off the road and we kept thinking, okay, well, some of us are here. Some of us are out here. We're going to be able to, I don't know what we were thinking about how we were going to rehearse it, you know, but when Don Waz stepped in, a good friend of mine and said, Steve, I want to be in the band. It made it worth waiting for him. That guy is an amazing player. And uh, he was really very helpful. And, so we sort of had two halves, one half rehearsing across the country. We came together that night and we had only one rehearsal, all of us together. And it was, it worked out. They had a great place, rehearsal place there backstage. Anyway, so going out there was just, the energy was just amazing that night. And you know how it is. I don't have to tell you. When you stand out there on a stage, you're sticking your neck out, man, you know? Yeah. And so... It could get chopped off or it could not. Possibly, uh, I was really glad that we didn't get total, you know, drummed out of the core. But the strangest thing happened because uh, you guys played there and you know what I'm talking about. The half a stage we were on, on the rotating stage, worked fine. But Melvin, who had the, uh, went on before us, he was having problems with the monitors. And then O'Teal, 
he had a real big problem. He couldn't get, they couldn't get his base through the monitors, you know? And so they rushed us off. They said, Hey guys, you know, we got to get an OT on every time. So you guys just do your set, you know, but don't stretch it or anything. So we just did a quick set and then we, we got off and then there was an hour before more music, you know? So it was frustrating in that way, yeah. but it, it always happens live things. We do this live or anything, you know, that it, things are out there exposed in a different right. way. Right. But uh, what a thrill it was. So that's just a great thing. And uh, you have uh, some more stuff. Uh, we and I are have, have a great project going that we've been working on for years, a Hollywood project. And that's coming close together. I'll, I'll soon be announcing that. And we also, uh, you know, there's so much stuff going on in my life with Grizzly Peak, which is really doing well on the California weed world. And that's something I'm really proud of because uh, it takes years to get that right, man. It's very difficult. And I've been involved in cannabis my whole life. I've always loved it. Before the Grateful Dead, I loved it, you know. But it was so helpful in, to all of our lives. as a uh, thing that I believe in that it, it made it actually as a protection thing other than when they talk about it being a gateway drug, I'm very much the opposite about that, that I think it protected me from going down other alleys. So I tried everything out there, you know, and that was the way it was. But always the coming back to cannabis was really what kept me sane on the road. Right. Well, man, knowing all that stuff you got on, I'm just so appreciative of you taking the time. And I got to tell you right off the bat that, my co-producers especially and I are regular listeners to your show. And it's kind of one of the reasons we started this, you know, um, during the pandemic, I was doing these zoom conversations on Facebook. And then I started bringing along guests. I brought Comenti and Keller Williams. And then I brought along Bill Walton. That one was a real treat. And, uh -huh. and we, we kind of saw the potential for a, a platform to have these long form conversations about the dead. Um, and, you know, we started talking to people from all these different genres, whether they were players or, luthiers like rick turner and stage men like you and you as well as anybody knows people who love the dead love to talk about the dead and uh, yes. talking with people from all these genres has really shown me how massive the influence is both musically and culturally not not just on stage so again you are a big influence and any guidance you have along the way is welcome for our little podcast here but i'm going to treat you like i do every one of my other guests whether it's yorma or donna or Bob Crawford from the Avid Brothers. We're, we're going to go right back to the beginning, if you don't mind. I know, okay. you, I know you were born in sure. New York, in Queens. That's right. That's right. Can you tell well, us? I was born in Manhattan. I was born in, in Manhattan. <laughs> ra raised in and, Queens? I'm raised in Queens, yes. Right, can you and, tell us a little uh, bit about that? Your, 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 your upbringing and kind of the start of your musical journey. Well, uh, you know, I was born a long time ago now. And so... <laughs> In those days, it was so different. Nobody, my mom, there were no helicopter moms or dads, you know. You just went out in the world yourself. And what a great place to have at your feet, New York City and all the environs around it. You know, uh, I was always a big kid, and I always had a thing where they, when I was a kid, they put me in a room that had the encyclopedia in it, right? And so I loved to read when I was a kid. I, I had this thing for reading. And so I started not with comic books, but with the encyclopedia at night with a flashlight. And I read it from A to Z 
all through it. By the time I was about in the second grade, I was wondering about the whole world, you know. And so I had these things and, and feelings about that someday this destiny was coming to me that I would travel the world. And I didn't know how or when or where, you know, I had a, this great imagination, I realize now. But that is how you make your path in life, man. And so then uh, it was a very term tumultuous time by the time I was a teenager and I was right there in the middle of street gangs and, and rough stuff, you know, cause I just, I thought I knew everything in the world and I didn't have to go to school to learn it. So I was being pretty much a rascal in every way, you know? And so as soon as I could, I beat it out to San Francisco and that was where the destiny came together for me. Because I was trying to avoid all the street trouble I was getting into uh, as a as a teenager and a juvenile delinquent, and so I thought, "Wow, what a great place! Go to San Francisco." So me and a buddy went out there to meet another friend of ours who'd been out there. And then one day, I'm standing out. It's 1968 in August, okay, and I'm standing out there and I'm smoking a cigarette. Actually. It, was not a marijuana cigarette at that time. <laughs> I only smoked a couple of cigarettes. Uh, I didn't smoke long after that, but I, at that time I was smoking tobacco. And I was out there, and there was a, right across where I was. I lived at 70 Brady Alley in San Francisco. And right across, there was a guy unloading a van. And he was by himself, and he was struggling with what I, I didn't realize was a dual showman base cabinet. I didn't know it at the time. but my dad was a great influence on my life. He was a tough guy and he was a teamster and he went way up in the ranks all the way to where he got to work with Jimmy Hoffa and all these heavy duty guys. And so he always taught me, he said, you know what, if you be surprised what the smallest movement in your life to help somebody that you see would maybe return something back to you, you wouldn't even realize it. He related it to things in his life, you know? And so anyway, I go over to help this guy, and lo and behold, I had no idea. That was Ramrod. And so he was loading in the Pacific High recording, and the guys were finishing up uh, Working Man's Dead at the time. We're starting it, actually. And so I didn't have any idea. But uh, and Johnny Hagen was helping him, but he had taken uh, some STP, and he was really high. STP was a four-day acid trip. Owsley only made it a couple of times, you know, but that thing of helping him ramrod unload that and we carried the base cabinet into the studio was like walking into the land of Oz. All of a sudden, I had no idea. I knew who the Grateful Dead were. I'd listened to their album. Their first album was something I loved. I loved it. It just got my mind started. And it was part of this whole thing that I was searching for in life. You know, the hate Ashbury was right there and all happening. Around the corner was the Carousel Ballroom, which was uh, being run by the Grateful Dead and, and the airplane. And it was just changing over to Bill Graham taking it over for the Fillmore West. So here I was, and I was a big, strong guy, and I, I was ready to help. And Johnny was kind of rolling on the floor in these, in these big drapes that were there, you know. So I got to help Ramrod. He was teaching me stuff. Then I started helping him because everybody was constantly moving. So you'd go over with the van and we'd move Phil, we'd move Billy or Jerry or somebody to a different house, you know, and all this stuff. And then I started to get to know the guys. Stupidly, I stopped and 
took a substance back east to try to sell it and make some money, right? And lo and behold, I got red-handed caught and uh, gotten in a big beef. And so all I wanted to do was get back to San Francisco. And here I am on Rikers Island now. And uh, boy, was that, I, I'd been in, in jail before, but not like this, man. I mean, that place was nasty. And it was just like being in prison, you know, full tears and everything. And you're 20 and so years I, old? No, I was 18. 18 I was less than 18, you know. Wow. And so uh, I said to myself, wait a minute. Is this, this isn't what I want for life. You know, I, I've been through a lot of stuff like that earlier on. And I said, I don't want any more of this, you know. And so uh, lucky enough that my dad knew in those days who to pay off. He paid a judge off, man, through a lawyer. And uh, I got off on this really, really bad scene that I was looking at some time for. And so remember the judge saying to me, you look like a good kid. Are you going to go to college? And I said, you bet, man, I'm going right to school. <laughs> and he, he why owed me on my own recognizance. That meant no, no, um, what do you call it? Um, probation. Probation or, or any reporting Pro to anybody. Officers, or being nothing. Watched. You could free to go wherever you want. We walked out the steps and my dad looked at me. He said, you idiot. There went your college money. And he kicked me so hard in the ass, man. He knocked me down the steps. And I got up and I said, what are you going to do now? I said, I'm going right to the Grateful Dead. And lucky enough, that was what happened. So I just went in those days, you know, for 20 bucks, you could fly standby. And so I went back out there and now it was now a year later. And now uh, things were getting going and really going. So I got to working at Alembic and uh, through Ramrod opened every door for me, you know, because if you were friends with him, then that started your opening. Everybody loved him. I mean, he was an amazing person and just my mentor. And at that time, the crew was forming, you know, and so right. uh, we so, worked at Alembic. Yeah. What? So when you first went back out there, then you're an employee of Alembic, not of the Grateful Dead at that point. Well, yeah, but the, you, there was no difference. I mean, basically, that's where everybody came right. every day and hung out. You know, Jerry mostly. Jerry would show up there and uh, Jack Cassidy, and we just smoked pot, and we learned everything. Alembic was a renaissance place that Owsley started. And downstairs, you know, we had Rick Turner and, and Irwin and this guy Frank and all these other guys making these amazing guitars and, and uh, coming up with ideas about guitars. If you stayed upstairs... Then you learned how to make cabinets and you learned how to uh, do electronics and everything. You know, I had a background in all these things because I was taught to use tools, you know, and I was taught to use my head and my body for uh, a, a careers oriented to work. And so uh, that was the ethic that we all had. And that work ethic brought us through to so much. And now Owsley was a great guy. And of course, Ramrod took me to him right away. And that was a, a rite of passage that you had to go through with him. And uh, that's a whole other story. You know, people can read my book right. before daylight because it's all in there, all this stuff that I'm talking about, except I couldn't at the time I wrote the book, Owsley was alive and Ramrod and everybody. And I could not tell some of the secrets that went in the early part of getting busted. So some of that I had to fudge a little bit because we just were never going to violate certain things that we had this inner circle, you know, 
Right. And the crew and the band, we all felt like we were getting away with murder almost because everybody had the same stories. In other words, Ramrod and Jackson had been in reform school. They met in reform school up in Umatilla County out in Pendleton, which was about as rural as you could get in America, man. Let me tell you. And they were true cowboys and they worked on wheat ranches. And so Kid and I came from cities, you know, Kid was from Alameda. I was from New York. We exchanged this thing on the crew. It started forming up at Alembic where we could tell those guys city stuff and they wanted to tell us all about country stuff. And so this crew was, was really getting strong. And Jerry was watching us form, you know, and he loved it. And so at Alembic, we had this chance to learn all this stuff. And everything was happening right then. You know, Altamont was the first big gig that we brought this PA to that Owsley had built called uh, these Bukla bottoms, you know? Right. And so I was swept up in that and just, I couldn't believe what was happening, you know? Right. And that was the start of gigging and gigging and gigging, man, from that point on. What an amazing story to start off with. Unbelievable. Uh, we're going to get back to our conversation with Steve, but I'd like to take a minute to tell you about Beth Koritz. She is a psychotherapist, intuitive clarity coach, and founder of the Authenticity Academy. For the past 12 years, she has been supporting her clients to fully embody their authenticity and create the life they desire with her three-step clarity coaching program. This is your time to gain clarity, defining yourself by who you really are and not what you do. Increase your confidence by activating your inner powers and take soul-led action, creating a life in alignment with your purpose, passion, and desires. Are you ready to learn more? Then book a free 30-minute clarity call with Beth. Visit www.yourclarity.coach or the sponsor page at themusicplaystheband.net. I know she is looking forward to supporting you on your journey. And now, back to our conversation with Steve Parrish. So when you came on then, we're, you were learning everything. You didn't like just come on and start working. Hey, I'm a guitar guy and this guy's that. You, everybody's learning well, everything. the funny part, when I was back... Uh, down by law in the New York time, I started looking for a job and I found the first place was uh, working at shows as a security guy because I was big. And so that opened me up right away to the stage. And I began to make friends in, in at the Fillmore East and other places. And those guys taught me stagecraft. So I was starting to learn even at that point. Right. And so I, I just, my life was destiny. You see everything, Every place I turned, it was leading me where I was going. That's beautiful. And man. there was so many strange things happening at the same time. And we were all fueled by this psychedelic uh, drug thing, too, constantly. We did every drug that came around, and that was a bonding nature of a very strong type. And so building uh, PAs was incredible. All there were, were were A1 bottoms. They were the same thing that were in movie theaters. It was just a 12-inch speaker with a big box around it, you know? So starting from there, which were what the PAs were like, boy, the world was opening up. And so with Owsley and, and Matthews and Healy, uh, you know, Healy and I started working at Quicksilver for a while, too. We had to go over there to work because uh, they needed us, man. And so we learned a lot in those days, too. And then... Uh, we went down, I went down to uh, uh, a show 
with the Grateful Dead. They just bought their first truck besides what we had Metropolitans before that. which were really just milk trucks. You didn't even have a seat on one side. It was just one seat. And uh, the airplane had one. And Quicksilver had one. And Grateful Dead had one. And Santana had one. So at Altamont, that was what was backstage. It was made up of those trucks back right up there. The stage was only 19 inches tall. It was really small. Wow. And, you know, we all bonded that day uh, to knowing each other. And then everybody went out in their careers uh, and began learning uh, incredible stagecraft starting from Woodstock and Altamont. Everybody said, wait a minute, there's so many things going wrong. Nothing was grounded. Everything was dangerous, man. Everything was fucking, you know, crazy shit. People trying to come up with these ideas and these huge crowds. You had these giant shows. Yeah. We had these genius sound guys that were coming up with ideas for delay towers and and, and thinking in a way that nobody else was thinking. As as much so, as as much as the band was in, as it was in, improvisational. So were exactly. you guys. Exactly. And so those two things were meshing together, you know, and like Jerry would laugh about it. He said, you guys invent yourself, you know, but the crew, he loved the crew and he was always that way supportive of us. And he would come with us when we went to shows at noon or one o'clock. He always went at the same time. I was going to ask and, you and about that a little a little bit later on, but you brought it up. Why? Why? why what, what was it about to hang in with the crew? Because he be was early. so excited, too, about what was happening. This The Grateful Dead, you see, you know, you, you, you're in a band. You understand this. You start off in nightclubs. You get fucking Wednesday nights. Then you make it to fucking Friday, if you're lucky. Then you make it to Saturday. And then all of a sudden, you're filling nightclubs. But it took a long time. Jerry would always say to me, wow, the first day we filled a nightclub, there were more people there than us. I couldn't believe it. And so that ethic was what we lived by. You know, he was the heart and soul at the heartbeat. And so all around it, this thing grew around him. And he called it a bacterial colony or something, you know. And that way it was um, uh, he, he wanted to see everything as it happened. And so he would be there right when we walked through the door. We'd have to throw out a quad box, plug it in, set his twin up, and he'd just stand there with his guitar watching everything that we did. That has to be what so motivating. Did. That has to be so motivating. For well, he did the same the thing in the Garcia band when we did that. That even started before that. You know, we the day we were standing in front of Alembic on Judah and Ninth, and and uh, I just bought this Cadillac from Ramrod, and he said. Hey, I got to go play with Howard Wales today. And me and Ramrod were standing there and he said, Hey, Ram, would you take my, my guitar, my Strat, which turned out to be the alligator later. He said, would you take this Strat, which we, he had just gotten from uh, Graham Nash and, and a twin over to the matrix. And Ramrod looked at me and he said, Hey, can you cover, can you do it for me? Because I, he just gotten together with this gal, Francis, and he wanted to go home and, and uh, make home, style living for a minute you know and so i said sure i'll do it and jerry couldn't believe it he says to me steve you do that i go of course man no problem and so uh just that way he was so he and i went over at one o'clock in the afternoon we bang on the door of the matrix the guy comes out it's pitch black in there and you know he he had just bought the place actually from uh, marty ballin's father and so uh jerry and i sat there he let us in and then he took off for a while and we sat there in a darkened club 
and we began to talk about things. And so he started showing me about his guitar and about amplifiers and telling me deep, deep stuff. He knew so much about gear and the sound and how it was made. And so here we are sitting there with just a shaft of light coming in from this door that was a little open and, and the light in this dark club, it was almost surreal. We're sitting in a booth and he, he showed, I set him up and then he was playing and he just started saying, name a tune. And I started throwing out every tune I knew, man. And he could play anything. And he was going all over the place playing stuff, you know? And I said to him, Stardust. And he said, that's my mother's favorite song. I said, well, my uncle, Mitchell Parrish, wrote the words. Wrote the lyrics, right? Yeah. And so we, and that was like, bam, these lights went on in both our heads. And we began to knit as friends in a way. And so then it became a thing where uh, he, that whole day, we, we always made every gig like that, where he would come as early as he could to be there and watch everything and, and, and it was a beautiful thing to see him that interested in everything. Now, the other guys knew what was happening, too. And Bobby was very interested in everything also. And Phil and, and, and Billy and them. But it was different degrees of how much they wanted to be there to see it. They knew what was happening, you know. <coughs> there was plenty of time. Because with the Grateful Dead, every single day with rehearsal, hangout, party, or a gig or going somewhere, loading the truck or, or, or moving people. It was never a dull moment, you know? And so we would hang out together wherever we were. When, when Alembic moved from the city, we all by that time were the Grateful Dead said, you know, we're going to just buy this PA and it's going to be ours. And so then everybody who worked on that went completely into a band crew and because I was doing Jerry's stuff in the Garcia band. And at that time, Joe Winslow was helping me with that. And he, he wasn't that motivated to learn all the detail. He, he, you know, was shy to stand back and it was good. And so I was learning everything I could about everything. And you had amazing teachers, like I said earlier. Anyway, Jerry would go to the shows and then, uh, hang out. And it was so much fun to hang out with him because he could tell you all kinds of things about music. And that was what we learned a lot about music and music was the environs that we lived in. You know, we had the new riders, we had the grateful dead and, and those two things were, were, were our personal things that we helped on those two bands all the time. And so that led to all these great things happening. You know, I'm proud to say that I think I'm the only roadie that was on Quicksilver's album. Jefferson Airplane gave me credit because Bobby and I used had this joke on their toasters over uh, Winterland. That was from a joke that Weir and I started yeah. where he'd say, why the roadie throw the toaster out the window? Because he wanted to see time fly. It's an old joke, you know. But why um, Right. And so uh, they they did a whole joke on that and, and that kind of thing, because humor was what kept everything going with all of us, you know. And, right. and we were at the heart of that in the center, Jerry and Bobby and I. And and that whole thing would keep everybody down going down the road. Otherwise, when you go on the road, you're act, you, you can get so macho. We were all a bunch of tough guys and, right. and the, on the crew. And, you know, you had Jackson and Kid and Ramrod and Heard was out with us. These were wild people, man. And, and we just didn't take shit from anybody either. The thing was, we walked in to any building in America, smoking joints, 
with long hair. In those days, we all wore tie-dyes, too. And so they were, what the fuck is this, man? And who are these guys? And what the hell does the Grateful Dead mean? And, and all that stuff. I'll and tell you what, this- man. My, my first experience meeting you was kind of like that. You won't remember this. Uh, to, like 2002 or so, you were with Billy with that Trichromes band at the Oregon, right. country, at the Oregon country Fair. Oh, yeah. I remember that gig real well. We played that day, and you guys came in. You're backstage, and some lady mm-hmm. came up and said, you guys can't smoke pot back here. And you had a joint. <laughs> and said, she says we can't smoke pot back here. Bullshit. And he said, you guys, you did, your, you did your thing, man. You did your thing. That was the first time I saw you and met you. And that was actually, I got a picture of it behind me. That was the first time Billy sat in with us. Um, I want to go back for just a quick second. Well, no, wait a minute. I want to say something about that because yeah. I couldn't believe it. So we came to that show. And then that was the first time I was here in Dark Star. Right. Okay. I knew Rob. I knew uh, uh, Eaton. Uh, I just realized you guys have three Robs. It's crazy, man. It's really hard on the bus. <laughs> and for a while, our road manager was Robbie Williams. We had four for a while. Fucking nuts, dude. Uh, that, that is that kind of stuff. But, you know, that day, so somebody said, listen to these guys. They, they, they really do a great job of, you know, reproducing Grateful Dead. And I was standing back where I couldn't see the stage. And then right. you guys started playing, right? And right away, I looked at Kreutzmann and we went, what the fuck? We had to walk over there to see because it really sounded very much like the real deal. And uh, so that's what got my attention about you guys right away. And uh, it was hard for me to, at that time, to understand some of that. But, well, you know, Jerry had always said that that's the highest form of, you know, people's appreciation is to try to do what you're doing in that way. Right on. But, uh, and so in that vein, I thought about it and then I, I gave you guys due props for that. I appreciate and, that. Uh, and you that did time, it Skull and Roses too the, the other night. You gave us well, yeah, props. I appreciate it. Because that. it's always that kind of way, you know, uh, in the brotherhood of all of us out there that are keeping this thing going. It's an amazing story. Yeah. And like Weir said to me the other day, uh, he said, this could go on another 200 years. And I said, Oh, it, it very possibly could. You and know? it will. It's, it's the modern day classical repertoire. There's no reason it won't just like Mozart and, 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 and Brahms and Beethoven go on. This music will too. It's that good of music. You know, it really is. Amazing stuff. And I so appreciate his kind words about dark star orchestra. This next portion of the podcast is brought to you by grateful sweats. Summer's here and the time is right for Grateful Sweats subtle song designs. Search Grateful Sweats on Etsy for a wide selection of gear like tees, tanks, beanies, hoodies, and of course sweatpants. There are more than 30 designs to choose from including Tennessee Jed, Women Are Smarter, Mississippi Half Step, and my personal favorite, Eyes of the World. Visit Etsy.com slash shop slash Grateful Sweats or get there from the sponsors page at our website. And right now if you use the code the music plays you can save 10 percent and receive a free pin and don't miss the clearance section with items up to 80 percent off so as soon as you're done listening head on over to grateful sweats now let's get back and hear some more from steve Parrish. um I, I, last week my episode last about a year ago i did a really nice conversation with rick with rick turner and i split it up into a bunch of little segments then we saw each other at Skull and Roses a couple of weeks ago, and unfortunately, a few days later, we lost him. So last week, I replayed that whole conversation for my episode, and and he talked a ton about the Wall of Sound and it coming together and all that. 
my question comes to you is you guys, your crew, you had to load it in, set it up, tear it down, load it out for you guys. Was it, this is the coolest, most cutting edge thing ever, or was it more what the fuck are we doing? Well, you know, the answer to that is it didn't happen overnight. It took us 10 years to build that. Uh, almost 10 years. And, uh, you, when you live with it every day, it evolved like a like a thing, you know. And there was only four of us that put that thing up, maybe six, maybe six at the most. And we used some local labor, but it was not easy. It was dangerous, and we had to do it ourselves because no one else could think, knew how to do it. So we basically would be four of us would put the wall up. But the thing was, you had to get up at 6 a.m., and you had to be at the hall at 8 a.m., opening the, the trucks and pulling out the speakers till 10 a.m. It took us two hours to unload everything, the amps and speakers. Then it took us till lunchtime to, lo- to set up the wall and to move everything in place. We ate a quick bite, and then we jumped back out there and wired everything. And then by that time, it was, we tested around 3 o'clock, and then the band would come in by 4 and sound check. And they would play out there, you know, and, and, and so then the show would go on and, and start about seven. And then we, they play in those days till about midnight or one o'clock. And then we pack out for three hours and then drive to the next place. And, and so it was really, I, I only could say that it was iron men and wooden ships days for us, you know, and that thing became part of us just like, sailors on the sea would have to live in their in their in their ship and make it worthy to keep going but we patched that thing up and it wasn't easy man we kept it running and it was it caused a lot of different strains on us you know of going on the road now and we still partied every night and we still had a wild time and to do all that was amazing yeah. and to hear the, the the sound dream that we tried to do with the band, with the audience hearing what the band was hearing, basically extended out to them, was a dream that basically started at a meeting one day, and that was the beauty of the Grateful Dead. The crew and the band, we sat in together. We we had meetings all the time to figure out our what our path was like, and so uh, we had a say in that because the guys knew it was important to figure out how we the logistics of going down the road were, and. Uh, we had some good road managers in there at times and we had some bad ones and we had all these things going on that every band has to put up with, you know, uh, getting bigger all the time and growing and growing. And so to refer to what you were saying earlier, I stand now at any show I go to and I go, holy shit, we started all this stuff that nobody even dreamed of, man. Yeah. you know, now you see everybody and, and the, the de-rigger uniform is black pants, black shirt and all that. It wasn't like that, man. In those days, first of all, everybody wore whatever the fuck they wanted. And it was mostly colorful tie-dye stuff that started from a couple of different reasons, you know? And one of them was Jerry, like started wearing a black t-shirt because he stopped wanting to do laundry all the time on the road, you know? And, and then the rest of us realized that, Hey, we blending in more as things got bigger and bigger we wanted to blend in a little more to the background and, and not be so stand out. And so we started wearing black at shows and it spread a little bit, but everybody still wore whatever they wanted. It was no hard, fast rule. Right. But uh, then also things like 
you know, headsets to the, to the soundboard. Nobody did that. And then all of a sudden it became a thing, you know? And so we started getting into that. And then there was communications with, with, uh, way distant stuff at the big shows like Watkins Glen and, and challenges of unbelievable dimensions. And we kept meeting all these challenges, you know, and getting bigger and bigger till uh, when we went to Europe 50 years ago to set in 72, that was an amazing fun tour because we had amount of equipment that we could handle and still see the world and enjoy the shows and do everything in a cool level. But still, we had a lot of equipment with us. Right. We brought our own PA. We brought our own stuff. And we were starting to get to 75 tons of gear. You know, it was no joke. And we could load in trucks like nobody else because that was something that we studied. And we worked all the time on that physical labor, too. Right. And and, and then you had the, st- the, the, the band constantly techno changing. Now, for instance, Jerry never played a pedal. He never had a pedal. And we were doing our, a gig at Keystone in San Francisco, a Jerry Garcia band, just me and him. We're in there in the afternoon, like always. And he was playing away. And he turned to me and he said, you know, go get me a Wawa pedal. And I, and I said, wow, really? Okay. That was such a big step, I realized now. That was like, here we are. We just were making an orbit around the, the, yeah. the earth or something one time. Yep. And then Jerry says, go get that. So I went down to Don Weir's Music City. It was on Columbus. It was a guy we knew. And he, I bought a Foxy Lady, Flock Red, uh, Jimi Hendrix, Foxy Lady, Fox, Wah Pedal, you know, and plugged that in. And that very day, Jerry had this idea when we realized it later that the 9-volt the battery in there was, start, was weak and we didn't have a whole supply of va- batteries or anything, we didn't even have enough money to buy strings for every show, which came later. You know, because Jerry would so sweat on his strings from one gig right. that you had to clean them to make them last for two gigs. So all this stuff was happening. Blow, it was like, you know, the universe, they talk about the Big Bang Theory, you know, how it's just constantly expanding. That's how it felt all right. the time. And so bringing that Wawa back, and he played it that night, then he realized a whole new way yeah, Jerry's man. mind was like this of doing pedals and, and not losing the power when you went into your pedal and not losing the tone of your guitar. It was a genius thing. I wish we'd patented the whole thing. You know? Great example of that is the work he ended up doing, like on those early uh, greatest story ever told. You know, he's using exactly well, all through all that stuff. You exactly. Know? You know, because he was a genius of that stuff exactly. and he did most of it with his hands. But when he had pedals then, that opened up all these gadgets that started coming out. And it was the most fun to go with Jerry to a music store anywhere <laughs> in America. And right. people wouldn't even see. We'd come in, you know, they might not notice us. Or might not even know who he was. Then all of a sudden he'd plug in and start playing and a crowd would start forming around him. You know, it, whether it be Manny's in New York or Leo's in Oakland or or Scotty's in St. Louis. I was or, just about to ask, great, I live in man. St. Louis. Were you with him ever when he went to Scotty's over there? Every time. And yeah. so that was so beautiful because there, that place, he would go there. Like when he bought his, first, uh, his second pedal steel, the show bud there we bought. 
and the show buddy amp and everything. He sat there all day and guys kept coming in. Jerry Garcia yeah. were playing with him. It was beautiful. I wish I could remember all the people that played with us that day. There's actually but some great was, tapes from there. There's some cassettes floating around St. Louis from those sessions at Scotty. Well, that we would beat it over there as soon as we got to town, you know, and it was out there kind of where we stayed at the Stan Musial Inn. Yeah, Musial and, and Biggies, yeah. And we had parties out there like you wouldn't believe, man. And and St. Louis opened its heart to us, one of the first places on the road. Yeah. And we would have these amazing times at the Fox Theater there. And uh, where, you know, I can't explain it, but the people in, in, in St. Louis, in Kansas City, in the Midwest were amazing partiers, man, because they came <laughs> from the stock that we loved, you know, and, <laughs> and, and we, everywhere we went, we loved it. Man. And we were finding out it was rough to travel in those days because everybody was really straight in America. You know, we were getting busted all the time by the cops and that kind of stuff was tough. We were fighting with the unions until we worked that out and then became the most beloved of all the unions because we knew what we were fucking doing. Right. Right. And, and so all what I'm talking about, the stuff that we started, there were no barricades at shows, Rob. I mean, everybody in the audience was taking all these psychedelics and we had to watch for them. They were jumping up on stage. Nobody could grab them or stop them. So we had to. We never hurt anybody, but we had to really do that all the time. We had to have an eye on that, you know. And it blows me away when you said, like, at Altamont, the stage was 19 inches high. I mean, you know. Well, it was a big mistake. We realized for disaster right there. Yeah, it's a recipe for disaster. But nobody thought about all that stuff, you know. And the angels come in there. Everybody thinks they were hired for security. Nobody would do that in their right mind. They are the worst people in the world that you'd ever want for security. They just don't have the patience for it. They're not, they were, they were our friends and they're good people. But the thing was that day, everything got weird because of uh, when Sonny and the older guys left all of a sudden at one o'clock, where are you going? And they said, Oh, we got a meeting up and open. And they took off and they left a lot of young guys and a couple of old guys there to try to keep control. But once their bike started getting knocked over, then they got angry. And yeah. so that made for a crazy day, but all ways i realized that working for the grateful dead i would say to myself so many times what the fuck kind of job is this man <laughs> you'd be delivering a baby one day and the next day you know out at rucka rucka that's how cassidy was written with uh eileen law having a baby and i was out there bobby and i were the only ones out there with her and there comes this baby and he's just playing away he'd been playing all week on an acoustic guitar playing that that tune over and over again and then it just came to him as this baby was born and named Cassidy and all that. And, and these kind of things were happening all the time. I go, wow, this is more than just a, a nine to five job in any right. way, shape or form. It's a lifetime of 360 living with this incredible thing. And it became a movable feast, man. Everywhere we went, we brought that vibe with us. Yeah. And so you saw the airplane who were just, they were big and they were so powerful. But then all of a sudden they didn't have the power that we had on the road. They lost that because they started doing TV shows and getting into uh, a whole different genre of, you know, hit records, which the Grateful Dead didn't have hits records. And so we just said, Hey, we're just going to be, you know, pounding nails out there and going on the road. And that's what we became a well-oiled road machine and everything came to us. When Jerry announced that he was letting people tape, you wouldn't believe the uproar that went down in showbiz, man. 
record companies would come and try to scream at us. And, you know, uh, I remember when Joe Smith walked on stage, I said, Jerry, it's a famous story. Joe Smith writes it in his biography. He's dead now anyway. But he came up. He he said, hey, tell Jerry, uh, I'm here. It's Joe Smith from Warner Brothers. I said, Jerry, Joe Smith from Warner Brothers is here. He said, oh, he is? Well, go tell him to go fuck himself. And so (laughs) I tell him that. He couldn't believe it. You know, he's looking at me like, what? (laughs) <laughs> because it was a different thing that these guys had this dream and it started with sound. It was Jerry saying, we're going to do the best PA possible. And sure enough, nobody made any money. We all put everything we had into that PA until it about drove everyone nuts, man. By the time 10 years later back, I mean, excuse me, uh, two years later back in Europe, we'd been through the wall of sound and taking the wall of sound to Europe in 74 was insanity, man. Yeah, that, that was they didn't even, nuts. they couldn't understand what we brought all this gear for and why we did it, you know? And so those kind of things were happening, but there was always this tight brotherhood and intimacy of sharing all this stuff with these amazing people that, being a part of the crew and and when you got you know you got your ring and you got uh your necklace given to you these ceremonies that went down you felt part of something strong and something powerful and something that was changing people's lives you know because when we gave up even earning any more money even the band and crew man we were just said we're going to put everything into our gear and make this something different uh it was because I remember Jackson saying to me one day, think how lucky we fucking are. Look at those people out there. Look how happy they are. And that, and that was a reward in itself of it came from Jerry, all that stuff, you know, and the, uh, and the guys were good about it. But when Jerry would stand up and say, let's give the crew a raise, man, everybody said, what those fucking bums? No way. man. Why?" (laughs) You know, and Jerry would just have to stand up and say, because of this and that and that. And then, of course, they would acquiesce or whatever, you know. But it was like being uh, um, in a world of the Lost Boys, too. You know, we hung out together. And so we didn't have to answer to anybody either. And as bold as we could be on the road, the guys liked it. Because here's the crew making it so they could get there and do what they want to do. And they felt safe with us, you know, because there was so much stuff attacking us all the time. Now, after Altamont, every other band turned their backs on the Hells Angels. Jerry said, no, we're friends with those guys before. We're staying friends with them now. We're just not like that. And so they took that as, wow, we love you guys. Nobody else is treating us this way. And so everywhere we went, they were expanding all over the world at the same time the Grateful Dead were. And so wherever we went, they were there, you know, and and so we knew them all. And the thing was, that how many times they wanted us to become part of their world. And people still ask me, was, was Pig a patch holder? Was Jerry a, a... No, of course not, you know, because we knew what that meant to be an right. angel. And right. that was something different, man, you know, but it, but it was co- kind of like the thing with... Jerry always likened it to, you know, Sinatra and the mob and that kind of stuff because we had to deal with the mob all the time, Rob. They were in showbiz everywhere. You didn't work in a theater in America without seeing... Those guys and Even everywhere. The 60s and 70s. Wow, man. Oh, yeah. of course. The 60s, unbelievable. Howard Stern, aside, excuse me, who ran the Capitol Theater and was the first guy. You know, his father was Ruby Stein, who was the bank for the five families, man. Right. And he ended up dying about that. But anyway, uh, you saw him everywhere. You know, if you worked 
in Providence, you worked with Frank Russo. Uh, if you worked in uh, Don Law in Massachusetts, those guys were connected to the family up there. And everybody had to work for Raymond Patriarcha in the nor- in the Northeast, you know. And Buffalo was another family. Harvey and Corky. That was goddamn Harvey Weinstein. And Corky's father was Mr. D, the head of the Buffalo Mafia, man. And so all these guys, we had to work with them, man. And we knew it. And, and so to have the Hells Angels back our play sometimes came in real handy, man. Lots of times. People don't know all the stories. We had to have help sometimes, man. When, you know, things would happen on the road and got pretty nasty at times, you know. In Cleveland, I remember when they called me over, the Union guys at the memorial, first time we were playing there, and the guy put his arm around me, you know, uh, and he said, you look like a good kid. And he stuck his 32 revolver up under my chin. He said, we'll blow your fucking head off, man, if you guys don't start working with us. And working with them at that time meant we don't touch our own gear and they're going to set it up. I said, what are you, crazy? And so we, we got into it with them, heavy. Holy and fuck, we man. knew that they had left a, a guy from the band called the Guess Who. They crippled one of their roadies about a month earlier. Word was out. Watch out. In Cleveland, man, always, you know, because they didn't fuck around. It was their livelihood. And they looked at us young guys as coming in now, and they were used to uh, legitimate stage and theater. And they said, this is taking our jobs away. We right. we know where's, where's the uh, scenery to hang? What is this shit? And who are you guys smoking marijuana everywhere and acting this way? But when 50 Hells Angels showed up, boy, did they change their tune. Because all of a sudden, we had backup. Right. Holy crap, man. Crazy. And so, you know, but that didn't make the band happy all the time either, you know, because that was a lot to put up with. But we had to deal with the backstage. Right. We were the only band that had 500 fucking guests at every show anyway. And so we knew <laughs> we knew them all, man. We knew them all. We made it our business to know it all because right. there was a fucking scene on the stage all the time. When I started working with the band, it was wall to wall party. It didn't right. end uh, in the audience. You can stand on stage and you say, well, where does this can, party begin and where does it end? You can see it in the pictures when you look on the wings and how many people. And so are there. finally, one day, you know, Jerry said, hey, at a meeting, what happens in front of the amps, we'll take care of. You guys be there on everything, but basically keep it together back there, you know. <laughs> and so things would people just would, you know, come up and put their drinks and, and grab stuff off of amps in those days. You know, they were fucked up and and they just it was a, a loose atmosphere. But I noticed something right away that every time somebody went near Jerry's amp or Bobby's or, or near Pig's organ, he, they, they, they took their mind off the music for a second. It's distracting. And so I, I felt that making a bubble for them to be able to play in was important. Right. And so we started making these rules, you know, and regulations about the stage, which ended up being the, 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 the whole way it is run. Every stage is run. It's now, pretty much the way. industry standard now, the way it runs. Yeah. On, and on the, the way stage, did we protected those guys. Yeah. On the stage, for the most part, you were you were Garcia's guy. Was there ever a time where you were working with the drum world? Yeah, of course. You start always doing drums, man. And so the first thing you learn is Mickey's drum set and then Kreutzmann's. You know, I was Kreutzmann's first roadie he ever had, man. Because it was a backup. It was like, hey, set up the drums now. And it was like the secondary thought. There wasn't. Nobody was assigned to everybody in the beginning, you know, and we all did everything together. And so Ramrod and I shared Jerry in the the beginning days because he was doing him in Grateful Dead and I was doing him in the Garcia band. And so Ramrod, what a gifted 
great guy to share all his knowledge with me and teach me everything he could because most guys, a lot of guys were trying to protect themselves and not tell you nothing. You know what I mean? It was just like that in those days, but other guys, not in the grateful dead, you, you learn because we were taught if you fuck up, you better tell what you did because if, and you make a mistake sometimes when you're fucked up, you haven't slept for a couple of days. Yeah. You plug the highs into the lows and blow up the fucking lows. You're not going to forget that day because everybody's on your shit, man. And, and they're ready to they, all day long. They're telling you that, you know, on the drum and side, the drum side was really cool, man. And Mickey had six gongs, Chinese gongs. <laughs> and and Mickey center, was right? a whole thing. And, and Billy was a whole different style. So you learned a lot about drummers. Now, in the Garcia band, I dealt with so many drummers that I learned all about it. And Mickey and Billy were teaching me to play drums because I liked playing drums. And so it worked for us. But and in the so, Garcia band, it was just a drum kit. When we were when you get back in with the dead, God damn. I mean, I, I know it firsthand because I deal with it every day. That shit changes so much from show to well, show. Well, the thing year, is that two to two it started off. Nuts? Not at all, because it started off. There was no risers. There was nothing. The drum sets were just drum sets on the stage with whatever yeah. extra mint stuff. Now, Mickey was constantly adding stuff. Mickey had the famous story that I'm sure you've heard about how he fried bacon on stage. And, you know, he would put, he ruined so many microphones, dipping them into the bacon grease. And, but it was a good thing because the smell, it all smelled like bacon. And in those days, it was kind of good sometimes to cover up the weed. But uh, <laughs> one day when he just finally kicked that fucking thing over and sent grease all over the stage, man, there was no riser. There was flat and it just went on everybody's cables and shit. That was the last day he ever saw that, you know. We had a shotgun on a, a four by four piece of plywood that was a little shotgun uh, cannon. And you loaded a blank shotgun shell in there, a 12 gauge. And Mickey pulled a lanyard and it, bam, it went off just like a, a fucking shotgun. And, and it would St. do it in alligator. St. Stephen and other times. And so when you heard them start going into that song, Man, you scurry to fucking stick a shotgun shell in there and you better know that it was a blank. Otherwise, you could kill somebody if it was a live one. So we only carried blanks for that, you know. But one day, Mickey pulled it when Ramrod was loading it and we could not scrub that gunpowder off his face. He looked like a raccoon for about a week, man. And so that was the end of that. But Mickey was never giving up, man. And Mickey would see the who. We'd play a show and he goes, I want to stand on my drum like him, you know. And then we started making heavier duty drum hardware. This drum hardware we had in those days was so thin. Right. You could bend a cymbal stand in your arm in your hands if you were mad enough, you know, right. and, and, and everything was so different. And one day we were doing a gig, I think it was in Columbus, Ohio and Kreutzmann hit his cymbal and it, the ride symbol went in the audience and hit this girl right in the fucking forehead. Can you imagine if that happened today? There'd be lawsuits. There'd be so many problems, you know, but then we started nailing everything down. Mickey showed us how you do that, you know, and with gaffer's tape. So we nailed bass drums and cymbals right into the fucking hardwood stage. That did not get us very much happiness from the people that worked in those places. So then we started putting plywood down to put the drums on. Right. And those led to risers. Then. And then that became, it never stopped growing and growing. Then Mickey left for five years and I just had a riser with Billy and I could do everything else, take care of all the other stuff, and just set Billy up, and and he was so easy in that way. It was Mickey, just a drum kit again. There's no percussion. Yeah, it was just a drum exactly. kit. Yeah, man. 
Well, um, Mickey resisted that, but we could talk about that for hours. I, we, there's so many things. No, man, so, if you'll stick with me, I got a couple questions I'd really like to ask you. If, if you, you better got, hurry up, though. I, I've got to go do some stuff. Man. All right. Uh, to stay, okay. Let's let's skip that then. Let's go down here. If you don't mind, do you mind talking about Jerry a little bit more? Yeah. All right. You, but, you and him were, were the closest of friends, you know, kindred spirits. You mentioned that your time, you guys hit it off right away. When, when he performed, you're always with him. You, you end up with the Jerry band. You end up managing it. How different is that? Is that a huge adjustment from being a stage guy to being a manager? Well, I was always there in on everything. You know, that, that was the way it was with Jerry band. We didn't have management at first. It was just me and him there at the clubs and trying to answer questions, you know. And so I learned everything all the time. But then when, you know, he said, okay, we're going to get this guy to manage it and that guy, it only got more complicated. But those guys were good, too. But a lot of managers got in trouble, you know, by uh, handling money and different things got dicey. OK, and so we went through a lot of management. And finally, one day, Jerry said, you know, why don't you just do it? Because it's just easier that way now. And so I worked it out to where I could stay in the gear because I'd watched Jackson when he became a road manager and left the crew. We, was a, we said, wow, man, that's a big thing. He came to us and said, I want to take this opening that occurred when Cutler left and uh, somebody else left. And then Jackson took a shot at it, but it destroyed him. It destroyed yeah. him. He died right in the middle of that. And, and because of all these things around you, man, people wanted to give you a fucking pound of blow. If you weren't smart enough to say, I'm not taking that. It could destroy your life, man, that fast, you know, and there were women and there were, uh, you know, crazy celebrities everywhere hitting on us and every band was blowing up. And we were on Saturday Night Live running around with those guys. And and when we weren't on that, we were on motorcycles all the time. So we, things were going faster and faster all the time and still are. So would you but, say the Garcia band for him then? I mean, uh, musically, it was nice because he could do whatever he wanted and play different stuff. But was the Garcia well, there band? was no way I was going to let Jerry down. Man. There was no way I was going to tell Jerry I can't do this or I won't. He knew I could. Right. So I said, yeah, I'll step into that. And I balanced it out. So I never left go of the gear, too. Right. I oh, still kept right. that together because I had two real loyal brothers helping me with the Garcia band. And so when I got there, I went in and I plugged Jerry's stuff in and uh, and then got you know him set up to play, change his strings. Those were things that were sacred uh, to me and our relationship, too. And he began to rely on me to be there for him all the time, you know. And so the day he said to me, I can't explain it, but I need you to do this with me. You know, it was really beautiful moment to me, yeah. you know, but Jerry would always say thank you. You know, you might be hard pressed to get that from other guys, but he was very respectful of all the work everybody did because he saw it with his own two eyes right okay he was there every day was was garcia band his sanctuary his place to get away from the chaos of the grateful dead of course he liked it a lot because you know he knew i was protecting him in that way and didn't have to have a whole bunch of people we didn't have security guys now you got all these guys with earphones and security like as if the president's coming on the scene you know and 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 they can't have certain things are all uh restricted you know there's Basically, it's a different world. It's become too sanitized in a lot of ways, you know. And Jerry didn't want his world like that. So in the Garcia band, wow, we just had fun. But we we really did great stuff, too. When I think about all the great musicians that went through that band, I swell with pride at what we did. 
And I was so lucky because every side project that Jerry wanted to do, I would go do with him. So everybody wanted him to play on their albums and stuff because he could listen to a song one time and play an incredible overdub on it. Right. So how we tough, got to do that together. How tough so is it? You got to, you got to, I got to go pretty soon. So oh, you got to, you got right, one then. more question, man. You okay, told me, I'll, you told me 45 minutes. I know, man. I didn't know it was going to go this long. I had so many good questions I wanted to ask you. So I'm going to just get out of them. Shoot. Well, when you cast chest, when I ch- cash the check for the half a million dollars for this one, we'll do it again. Okay, then I'm going to ask you one more question, and then I get need about another minute after that. The dead okay. had so many highs, so many lows, a lot of which we didn't really get to talk about because I know you're uh, short on time. But let's focus on the happy stuff for you personally. What stands out as some of the high points in 25 plus years on the road with the dead? Well, the friendship is unbelievable when you think about the depth of the friendship and uh having a relationship with a guy like bob in my life you know who cares still about everything and uh to have all the experiences to look back on that we we got through it without that much damage i mean there was a lot of pain a lot of people dead a lot of people gone almost everybody from the crew is gone or disabled in a lot of ways now and so i feel like in my life to be able to tell the stories we were so closed down and 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 the deadheads are so hungry for information they want to know every single detail so that's all very fulfilling for me to have the memory that i have and and the memories of this amazing trip that we did and to be able to explain it to people like yourself or whoever wants to hear about it and so i i respect coming on your show i'm not trying to you know rush you maybe you have me on again you know, i will if you definitely feel like have more you to on talk again, about there's some other stuff but, i'd like to uh, talk about before i do let you go steve one thing i do this with every guest it's quick it's the lightning round answer them quick <laughs> <laughs> i know that might be tough but first grateful dead show oh my god and uh the first Grateful Dead show was in 68 in the summer uh, at the carousel. This is so. going to be a brutal one for you. Favorite Grateful Dead show? Well, there's so many. You know, it's like <laughs> That's a bad it, it, it's, <laughs> it's really hard to go. You know, people get hung up on certain times or places. But right. I never wasn't a time that the music was uplifting, you know, and to be so close to it like we were, it was a different way. Uh, in other words, you know, we were part of it. Like Jerry would sometimes, le- you know, mention us in a lyric or something like that, or talk about uh, his signature in, in with his guitar, something that we talked about that day. Right so on. being part of that every show was an amazing thing. And to get to do things like go to Egypt, how can you not say that was a world lifetime unbelievable destiny of everything so i'll I'll pick an egypt show or i'll take the whole european tour of 72 because we were young and strong and fucking happy you got that's a beautiful thing you got a favorite dead album i'll always be imprinted on uh working man's dead really was amazing when i first worked and heard everything on on uh american beauty I thought, Rob, that this was going to change the world of music. I said, "Wait, this hits the world. And then all of a sudden, it was a slow process. The world digested that album slowly. And so I stopped thinking it in that way of albums because we did live recordings, you know, and, and Live Dead was it blew my mind. You know, mm-hmm. here we 
here's a band doing live recordings. That was so new at that time, you know. Live, live Dead comes up a lot as people's favorites. Um, this one's tough. The, the energy on Live Dead, you could feel it. And it was like being there in a show, you know. And and so, yeah, there's, there's every time there's so many moments that you got that epiphany of what the Grateful Dead was an important thing and never dreaming how important it was. Right, right. Favorite color? <laughs> Red and purple. All right. Uh, favorite venue to play? Well, you know, there's so many. Another thing, there, there's so many great stories for everywhere we played. And 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 to think, when I, when I think of a venue, man, I think of all these stagehands that are gone, all these promoters, right. all these people that Such would come to shows in each town. But you can't knock Madison Square Garden. You understand right. you're at the epitome of, of what in the old days would have been playing at the Palace Theater in right, Vaudeville. Right. It would have been like playing at the, uh, you know, the high, the finest Symphony Hall, like right. Carnegie Hall, which we did, too, at times in different ways. But... Uh, you know, the, you knew at Madison Square Garden you were at the top of the heap. To play stadiums like giant places like uh, Soldiers Field in Chicago, you're going, right. this is history, man. I'm here in history. Those places have been there forever. And the other that? day I was watching an old, old movie in, in about San Francisco, right? And it was way back at the turn of the century. And there I saw in the background a poster for the Orpheum Theater. And I thought to myself, holy shit, we played awesome. there too. You That's know? awesome. And then it was already an established place back then, you see. Right. And to have those going to theaters and to going into clubs and to going into all these places to me was another entity, each one of them. They were alive with stories. The dressing rooms were there. I'd find the oldest stagehand sitting there who was feather bedding, basically, not even doing much work. Right. But I'd say, wait a minute, this is 1971. And this guy is 80 years old and he's a stage in and he would tell me, he showed me, he said, yeah, up there in that dressing room, that's where Al Jolson appeared, you know, and he, yeah, he was man. just starting awesome. or this and that. And so I would tell Jerry that all that stuff would blow his mind, you know, because he was still seeing Buddy Holly when he played Not Fade Away. He said, I'd see him in the in the wings of the Fillmore East. There were always these old theaters all had these beautiful you know booths up there and uh balcony uh special boxes anyway that's enough and, see, and when we much. when we play we see the dead in those boxes you know and that's exactly that does it for and that's the beauty of it best, that's, uh, that's best right. city, one, one more your best city for a day off <laughs> are you nuts man, no, I mean, man they're see, it's all different. like it's, that it's different asking you once because city, you're on the other side. Well, the once the city revealed itself to you, like there were years we went to Chicago and we never really cracked the nut. We couldn't figure it out. What is right. this place about? You know, right. we went there, we had successful shows. We knew people. We, we met uh, nefarious characters and all this <laughs> stuff. And we partied at hotels, but all of a sudden you find the, the right one day off and you find the right restaurant and then it opens up in a different way and, right. and new people show up and you start taking advantage and you realize that now your status is different with people and that would happen everywhere. And so once you, you crack that nut in the city, it became one of your favorite places right to go. On, and so when you did that, 
everywhere was like that. Now, Indianapolis was different. You, you, you wondered what Indianapolis was about. I still do. But I still know there's beautiful people there and there's right. beautiful scenes and there's beautiful places all over America, man. And when we went even to, to anywhere in this country and anywhere in the world, we made friends and we opened up to them. We also made enemies, too, at times. And we had to overcome that. So every place is beautiful to me. Such a such okay. a different perspective, man. Steve Parrish, thank you for your perspective and your stories. I do want to have you back one day because I'd love to ask you a couple more questions. But I know you're well, busy. Good. Thank you so much for taking the time today, my friend. Right on, Rob. Thank you for having me. And hello to everybody out there. And I, I, I thank you very yeah. much for letting my, me talk. And, my uh, pleasure, man. That's Steve Parrish, everybody. Thank you very much. Talk to you soon. All right, all right. I hope you all enjoyed that. Uh, that was good stuff. We will get more with him. I don't think it's going to take me a half a million dollars to do it, but I will get Steve Parrish back on again. But that does bring us to the end of another episode, and I'd like to thank Steve Parrish once again, and thank my sponsors, Grateful Sweats and Beth Chorus at yourclarity.coach. And of course, the Pantheon Podcast Network for bringing me into their family. You can check out their 70-plus music-related podcasts at www pantheonpodcast.com If you enjoyed the show and would like to support the cause, please consider a monthly Patreon subscription that offers some great bonus content every week or you can show your love with a one-time contribution and please remember that a portion of your contribution will go to the Rex Foundation. Get info about this and everything else related to the podcast at www.themusicplaystheband.net Any love is much appreciated as we try and keep the show rolling along. The Music Plays the Band is produced by myself and the production and songwriting team Brothers Lazaroff here in St. Louis, Missouri. You can find out more about them at www.brotherslazaroff.com. 
The opening and segue music you are hearing are remixes of portions of DSO drum segments that are produced by my drumming partner, Dino English. I'll be back as soon as I can with episode number 36. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and please stay vigilant. We're out there working. You guys get to come listen. Let's keep it up and have a good time. But let's take care of ourselves and everyone around us. Thanks for being here. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.